Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? So I learned something this week. I was scanning the internet and I found an article entitled 25 Words That Don't Mean What You Think They Do. And I learned that there are a lot of words that I have been apparently using incorrectly. For instance, do you know what the word barter means? It means to haggle or negotiate, right? Not exactly. The word barter originally meant to trade one commodity or thing or good for something else, usually without money being involved. How about the word oblivious? Know what that means? means unaware, right? No. Actually, when it was first introduced, it meant forgetful back in the 15th century. Unaware or unconcerned is a meaning that has come about more recently. How about the word plethora? means a lot or a bunch, right? Not so much. Actually, plethora is speaking about an overabundance of something, mainly, originally anyway, bodily fluids, particularly blood. And so in the Greek, it actually came to mean fullness. Whatever. I guess there are a plethora of words that I am oblivious to using correctly. This morning, we're looking at a word that seems pretty straightforward. It's associated with a concept that I think we all understand, and it is the word strength found in the Shema that we have been looking at in Mark chapter 12. Let's look at it again. Starting in verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came up and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is here, Israel. The Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, you've heard me say it over and over again, and I hope you'll continue to remember me saying this for many generations to come, but it's always important to take the words of Scripture in context. And within their proper context, Jesus is being tested by religious leaders. The first test was political in nature. You go back to verse 13 of Mark chapter 12, it reads, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to uh, trap him, and, and they asked him this statement. They said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not to pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. That was the first test, political in nature. The second test came from the Sadducees, a religious group that did not believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead. Notice their test. Verse 18, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and does not leave a child, his brother is to marry the wife and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children and the third likewise. And so the seven together left no children. 
Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For each of the seven had her as his wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The Sadducees had come up with a question that they thought for sure would expose the absurdity of what Jesus was teaching about the resurrection. We talked about this before, but in Deuteronomy chapter five, or 25, you can read all about this, but there was a thing known as leveret marriage. In this culture, a leveret marriage was when a woman was married to a husband and he died, then the brother of the husband was to marry the widow and they were to have children together. And those children were regarded as belonging to the husband that died. And so the Sadducees come up with this example of leveret marriage. And they expose, try to anyway, expose the absurdity of Jesus' teaching by creating this scenario, right? If the husband dies and the brother of the husband refuses to take the wife and have children with her, then they were to go before the elders. The woman was to loosen his shoe, slap him in the face, spit in his face. It's all in Deuteronomy 25. You can look at it. It sounds silly, but it's there. And so the Sadducees say, well, what if the dead husband had seven brothers? They all marry the woman and subsequently die. None of them have children. So which one is she going to be married to? Like that could ever happen, right? So which one is she going to be married to at the resurrection? And Jesus says, none of them. Because there is no resurrection. I mean, there's no marriage at the resurrection. Well, that kind of hits you in the heart, doesn't it? You mean he's not my forever love? We're not going to be together forever? Well, Jesus didn't say that you wouldn't have a relationship in heaven. I've got to believe that the bond that I share with my wife here on earth, as great as that is, it's going to be even greater in heaven. Everything's greater in heaven, right? So it's important to emphasize what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say that they wouldn't have a bond or that they wouldn't know each other or anything like that. He's simply pointing out the absurdity of what they're trying to back him into. She's not going to be married to any of them because there is no resurrection as you see it in, in, in a marriage in the resurrection. Anyway, after hearing Jesus' response to the Sadducees, a scribe decides to test the Messiah one more time. Not a good idea, but he decides to. And he asks this question, what commandment is foremost of all? And we know, of course, Jesus' response. It was a response meant to highlight and expose the purpose of the law and expose the religious leaders in their failure to live out that purpose. You know what the law was like? The law was a dentist mirror. You've been to the dentist, and he uses that mirror and maneuvers it around in your mouth to try to find, y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all do it every day. They look around in your mouth to try to find abnormalities or cavities, but they don't drill with it. The law was like a flashlight. If the lights go out in your home, you can turn on the flashlight and you can maneuver around the furniture you can even go out to the breaker box and check the fuses. But if a blown fuse is the problem, you can't insert the flashlight in there to make it work. The law was like a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? You know, a builder will use a plumb line to make sure that the wall is vertical, that it's, that it's straight. But if it's not, you can't use the plumb line to fix it. The law was like that. The law like a dentist mirror could show you what was wrong, 
The law, like a flashlight, could expose the problem. The law, like a plumb line, could tell you that things weren't straight. But the law didn't fix anything. Jesus was the fix. Jesus was the solution to the problem. The law was never meant to be the ultimate solution. It was a dentist mirror. It was a flashlight. It was a plumb line. It exposed a problem. It didn't fix the problem. And Jesus says, you're missing it. You've got cavities, but you're trying to fill them with the mirror. You're trying to to maneuver in the dark with a flashlight and insert it in the fuse box, and it doesn't work that way. Your lines are all off, and you're trying to use a plumb line to fix the wall. Law is not the solution. Jesus is. He is the embodiment of all that the law and the prophets were pointing to. They were pointing to him, and so in an effort to correct their thinking, he recites the Shema, a prayer that Jews prayed twice a day, that they were certainly familiar with, he is reorienting their thinking with the central prayer of Jewish orthodoxy. This prayer was not just meant to be a ritual or a routine. This prayer was praise for the God who delivered. So you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your affections, your essence, your being. You are to love the Lord your God with all your soul, everything about you. Everything you have, everything you are, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, your logic, your reason, your intellect, and you are to love the Lord your God with all of your strength. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your strength, with all your vivacity, with all your vitality, with all your ardor, with all your strength, with all your, your, your zeal and your zest and your enthusiasm, right? Every bit of vibrancy and vivacity that you've got, right? Well, that's not bad commentary. But it's not accurate. When you consider that the Hebrew word used for strength here doesn't even mean strength, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? There's a word for strength in Hebrew, but that word's not used here. No, instead, the word that was chosen is meod. And so if we want to understand strength in reference to the Shema, then we have to turn our attention to meod. What does meod mean? Any of you ever do this when you were in school? The teacher assigned you a paper, and it was a lengthy paper, maybe two or more pages, and you had trouble finding sources, or maybe you just were lazy like me, and you didn't go look at sources, and you just tried to fill in, you know, a paper about a certain historical figure or thing with the word very. Did you ever do that? George Washington was a very, 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 and you, know, and you meet the quota of words, right? You get to two pages pretty quick doing that. My teacher didn't buy it. I don't know if yours did or not. Mine did not. Mine uh, thought that that was pretty lazy, and I guess it was. But in essence, that is what mayod or strength is. That's the definition. It is very, very, very. It's an adverb that means very or much. And here are some examples. Genesis 131 states, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was, what? Mayod good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, it reads, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became maod angry, very angry, and his face was gloomy. In Genesis 7 and 18, we read, The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Increased greatly here means, guess what? Maod powerful, or extremely powerful, very powerful. In 1 Samuel 11, verse 15, When Saul is made king, it says, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced 
greatly. Maod. So, maod is a Hebrew word that intensifies the meaning of other Hebrew words. When the biblical writers wanted to increase the intensity of a word, they would say maod multiple times, like I did in writing that two-page paper. Actually, they didn't go that far, but they would use maod in reference to something else to intensify its meaning. For example, Genesis 30 and verse 43, it talks about Jacob's increasing wealth. Notice the language. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female male servants and camels and donkeys. Exceedingly prosperous. Maod, maod, prosperous. Very, very prosperous. In Numbers chapter 14, spies come back from the promised land. They give a report And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. It's very, very good. It is maod good. So maod doesn't mean strength in terms of, say, muscle power, right? Rather, it means strength in terms of strengthening or intensifying the meaning of something else. So maod, as it appears in the Shema, refers to devoting every possibility every opportunity, every capacity that you have to honoring God and loving your neighbor. It's not a thing, it's everything. It is the widest, most expansive word in the Shema. It means to love the Lord your God with all your veriness, all your muchness, literally. It is wholehearted, life-encompassing allegiance to God. So, maod is a multifaceted word And what I mean by that is that maod can mean almost anything. It is capable of many expressions. And in ancient Jewish communities, it was often interpreted in the Shema differently depending on who was doing the interpreting. For instance, the Jewish scholars who translated the Bible into Greek used the Greek word dunamis instead of maod. And the word dunamis means power or strength, which is a common interpretation among scholars. Ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible interpret maod to mean wealth. And you think, well, that's very different until you consider that money is a very concrete thing that you can use as an opportunity to show love to others, right? You take what God has blessed you with, you bless others. What about Jesus? What did Jesus mean? What did he mean when he used the word maod? Well, the translation that he subscribed to... um, really is a little different as well because you take what we talked about last week and you combine it with what we're talking about this week. He actually took the concept of mind and strength and sort of fused them together. It's interesting how he puts it. These are both human capacities that can be used to love and serve God in an infinite number of of ways. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind and all your strength. So what are we getting at here? What does it mean? Does it mean strength? Does it mean wealth? Does it mean mind? Does it mean power? What does it mean? Well, if you're asking what interpretation is correct, let me tell you, that's the wrong question. We even more confused? Maod is not limited. 
It doesn't limit the way that you can show love to God. To love God with all of your strength is a call to love God with all of your muchness. And that's the whole point. The point is everything in a person's life. Every moment, every opportunity, every ability, every capacity, every resource, your money, your children, your spouse, all of it is a chance to love and honor God. The one who made you, the one who delivered you, this is wholehearted, life-encompassing, community-impact exclusive commitment to our Heavenly Father. And this type of all-in living demands something from us, doesn't it? It demands that we clean out every closet in our lives. Every relationship is influenced. Every thought must be captured. Every word must be filtered. Every action must be weighed. Every piece of me must be at peace with the will of God. To love God with all of your strength starts with God-oriented affections, desires, and thoughts that permeate my speaking, my activity, and then influences the way that we spend our money, how we drive, what we watch, what we're eating, whether we're singing, running, texting, gaming, working, whatever it is, Jesus is to be seen in us. My muchness cannot be minimized. I went to uh, Harding this past weekend, this past week actually, and spoke at chapel during their lectureship. And I planned on flying and then at the last minute decided I wanted a vehicle. And so uh, I was going to drive, but Zane's car had to go into the shop. And so contacted Eddie. I said, hey, those church vans don't get driven much. Can I take a church van down to, to Harding? He said, yeah, go for it. So I'm driving along, and I don't know how to say this without you thinking less of me, but I can be an angry driver sometimes. Um, I'm driving down the interstate and goes to one lane. And so I get over like a good citizen should do, and like every good citizen should do. I go into one lane and I'm stopped for longer than I should have because other people decide that they're going to go all the way to the front and then turn on their blinker to try to get in. Not on my watch. <laughs> I, keep, I keep driving forward. These cars are putting on their blinkers. They're trying to nose in. Huh, it's not happening. <laughs> you saw the sign like everybody else did, right? I keep inching forward, I kind of give them a dirty look, and I keep inching forward, and then it hit, then it hit me. You've already thought ahead, it hit me, not in my car. <laughs> They're seeing this driver with a scowl on his face and big bold letters on the side of the van, Oldham Lane Church of Christ, Abilene, Texas, <laughs> www.olcoc.com. And if they went to that website, they saw a picture of Chris McCurley, and they said, that's that guy. That's the jerk that wouldn't let me in. It's not just a van that should change the way you act. It's your devotion to God. My heart is filled with joy. My soul is consumed with praise. My mind is packed with reason after reason to be thankful. And therefore, my strength, my muchness, my mayode is about loving him and loving those who are made by him. There was a world-renowned theologian who was asked by a student one time, what is the greatest biblical truth that you have ever encountered? If you, could, if you could boil it all down, what is the greatest biblical truth? And this world-renowned scholar said, and I kid you not, 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There are a lot of things that you can know, but I agree with this guy. That's probably the most important truth you could ever know. You can know all the eschatological arguments. You can recite Psalm 119 in its entirety. You can be able to you know, speak Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew fluently. But it really all boils down to that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that simple truth demands a response, doesn't it? Either to embrace it or to walk away from it. But you walk away at your own peril. But understand, if you embrace it, what that entails. To embrace that truth means that you are all in. Because there is no part-time discipleship. There is no half-hearted devotion. And the reason why is because, folks, Jesus isn't neutral. This is a full-on covenant relationship, and he's not neutral in this. You don't get more all-in than dying for someone. He gave everything he had. His muchness for you deserves your muchness for him. All my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my mayode, his muchness culminating and dying for me so that I could live for him. That's the question we often ask. Preachers will often say, are you ready to die for Jesus? I'm going to ask you a different question. Are you ready to live for him? Because that's really what it's about. He died for you so that you could live for him. Are you willing to do that? Fiorello LaGuardia was mayor of New York City during some of the worst times in our history. He was mayor of New York City during the Great Depression and during World War II. He was often called the little flower because he was only five foot four and he wore a little carnation on his lapel. And he was a different kind of mayor. He would ride with the firemen to fires. He would raid speakeasies with the police. He would take an entire orphanage to a baseball game. He's a wonderful man who did a lot of wonderful things for the city. And one night in January 1935, it was a bitterly cold evening, he showed up at night court. And he dismissed the judge and decided to sit on the bench himself. And right out of the box, he got the case of a little old lady in tattered clothing who had stolen some bread. She had stolen some bread because she said, her wife's husband had left her, and her grandchildren were starving. And she didn't know what else to do. Without any money, she stole the bread to feed her grandchildren. The grocery clerk that she stole from wasn't having it. He thought that she should be made an example. And so LaGuardia looked at the woman, and he said, I've got to find you. You've got to be punished. So I, I'm going to order you to pay $10 or spend 10 days in jail. And even as he's handing down, rendering his judgment, he's got his hand in his pocket. And he pulls out a $10 bill and he lays it down and he said, and here's the fine. I'm going to pay it for you. And he looks around the courtroom and he says, by the way, I'm going to fine everyone in here 50 cents for living in a city that would allow a woman to have to steal bread for her grandchildren. And so everybody in that courtroom paid 50 cents. And the next day, the newspapers talked about how $47.50 was raised from fines of people in that courtroom, police officers, the bailiff, petty criminals, and that red-faced grocery clerk. They all paid their 50 cents. And $47.50 was given to that little old lady who stole the bread. Here's the point of that story. That woman got something she didn't deserve. Can you relate to that? You better shake your head yes, because every single one of you in here have gotten something that you don't deserve. I think about this in my life. I don't deserve to be here. 
I don't deserve to be up here. My life has taken so many twists and turns where I've tried to ruin this over and over again. And yet here I stand before you because God had something better for me. The very fact that you could get up this morning and come to church is a testament to God's grace. The very fact that you can sit there right now and listen to me or sleep and draw breath is a testament to God's grace. The very fact that you can have your name written in the book of life that you can revel in your salvation, that someday you will bask in the glory of God forever. That is a testament to God's grace. You have gotten something that you don't deserve, and we had better be thankful for that. Every day testifies to the grace of God. The righteous judge had mercy on all of us. He was all in, even when we weren't. Say it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to do something for me this morning. When you're leaving on the tables at the exits, you're going to find one of these. It's a poker chip. And you say, why are we handing out poker chips in church? Chris, are you promoting gambling? Not at all. Not at all. But do you know what a poker chip represents? If you played poker, you do. A poker chip or chips, when you have them in your possession and you believe that you have a winning hand, you push them all to the center of the table and you say, all in. This poker chip represents the confidence that you have in your winning hand. You have that confidence? Do you have the confidence that you have a winning hand? Because you do. You've already gotten what you don't deserve. You're all responsible for the death of another human being. You've already gotten what you don't deserve. And you hold the winning hand. I've looked at the back of the Bible. We win. Do you have that confidence? So pick up a chip. Keep it in your purse, keep it in your pocket to remind you that I'm all in. To remind you that you hold the winning hand. To remind you that all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your muchness is engaged in this walk, in this fight, in this effort to be better every single day and to spend eternity with your Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are, for who you're making us out to be. May we put our full confidence in you, and may we live with our entire being all in. May we be who you would have us to be. And God, we know that this life is difficult, that it takes twists and turns, and we know that it could all be made easier in an instant if you would just send your son, if he would come back. And we pray that prayer that he come quickly and that we all be ready for his coming. God, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You know, as a preacher, I believe in speaking to the Mondays. It's easy to preach to the Sundays, right? It's easy to preach to Sunday because we're all in here. I mean, that's why you're here. For the most part, you're all in on Sunday. What about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? What about tomorrow? Will you be all in tomorrow? Get that right right now. There is no reason for you to leave here this morning without being right with God. So whatever that needs to look like in your life, whatever you need to do, remember that you're born with an expiration date and you don't know when it's coming due. So take care of it this morning. And if we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.